Welcome to Comic Syllabus, a comics analysis podcast. I'm Paul, I'm an English teacher and a literacy researcher, and this week, a conversation with writer Mark Russell. Mark Russell, y'all! We're going to talk about his new series with artist Steve Pugh called Billionaire Island, which uh, the first issue of which just came out, and his recently collected first arc of Second Coming, both series from Ahoy Comics, Second Coming with um, artist uh, Richard Pace. Um, and then after that, our picks and shovels for the week. I'll talk about some of the things that I've been reading. Um, your co-host, Johnny, is out sick. Johnny, you are missed. Um, but me, I'm Paul. I'm an English teacher and a literacy researcher. And uh, here at Comic Syllabus, we read widely and we dig deep in the world of comics and graphic novels. Uh, we are just one podcast at multiversitycomics.com's whole network of podcasts. Go there to the site for those other podcasts as well as news and reviews and interviews and comics previews and lucky horseshoes and all kinds of good comics stuff for the comics reader, the comics fan, the comics aficionado. And if you like our show, please do subscribe and rate and review and all that business. We appreciate you getting the word out about Comic Syllabus. Um, You can always um, uh, send us feedback and interact with us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all linked in the show notes. So thanks for listening and we're going to take a little break, and then we are going to have this wonderful conversation we have with Mark Russell, who was just a heck of a guy to talk to. Um, so smart, um, so interesting, and we talk about Billionaire Island, which uh, was a very, very cool, uh, splashy first issue. And then, um, you know, this this series, Second Coming, about uh, Jesus and, and a Superman-like character um, rooming together, becoming roomies, and their experiences as Jesus comes back to the to the world, uh, thus second coming, and uh, it I, I just think it's a really deep book about um, about religion and society, um, and and I think most of all about power and 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 how we wield how we wield it. So uh, great conversation with Mark Russell. After that, stick around for some of my picks and shovels for this week, and talk to you after this. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at multiversitycomics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commandy. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. Um, Mark Russell, it is incredibly cool for us to have you on the Comic Syllabus uh, podcast. And, you know, Johnny can make it to, to be here in the conversation with us. He's he's running ill, but um, we are both have been super, super excited. So thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? Doing good, good. Thanks for having me, and uh, send Johnny my regrets. Yeah, yeah, he's um, he's definitely regretting as he's listening to this. No doubt that he can't be here. But actually, he threw me some questions. So you know, Johnny's a brilliant guy. I'm, I'm going to throw throw some of those questions. He's out. here in spirit. Then. That's right, yeah. in spirit and intellect, everything. Um, we're really excited to talk to you about Second Coming, which um, the the trade collection is coming out. Um, from Mohoi Comics, of course, and also to chat up um, Billionaire Island, which is your new series from Ahoy as well. 
And uh, you know, here on Comic Syllabus, we really love digging deep with with creators about your process and your ideas and about the work itself. And so, um, you know, we uh, just as by way of introduction, because we, we've never had the, the privilege to talk to you before. Um, I, you know, I, as I mentioned before, we're we're both huge fans. And uh, you know, I, I've heard other interviews where you know much has been made about how you kind of emerged out of nowhere this like sudden rise to comics prominence but i definitely had that that feeling when i started hearing about you um when i started hearing about you but it, it may have been a little bit earlier i was a uh, so my local comic shop is in berkeley and shannon wheeler i think frequents it and uh so i, I got i picked up yeah. god, is, god is disappointed in you which was sort of you know your first book with uh wheeler providing these uh, brilliant sharp illustrations and um, I picked that up around the time that the DC, I think it was the DCU initiative. Is that when, when Prez, is that when Prez came out? That That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, DCU uh, was my big break into comics. <laughs> yes, that's right. But you and, and many. Uh, now, now too sadly off forgotten, but Prez was a revelation. And so all of a sudden you were everywhere. I was, I was reading God is Disappointed in You. I loved that. I love the wit in it, and then um, uh, Prez was was just uh, awesome. You know, I was one of the throngs that were, you know, decrying it's it's, it's wrong. <laughs> um, I think you're one of like three people <laughs> who was reading that comic. We're a tight club on the internet, uh, uh, and then Flintstones really sealed it for me. You know, um, you you became uh, to me a voice that um, I, I just I treasure and adore in. Um, it's particularly in this segment of comics, I think, in the kind of direct market where, you know, your stuff like um, everything from Snagglepuss to the to works we're talking about have existed. So, um, you know, you, you definitely won me over. So <laughs> excited to dig deep with you. Um, Sounds good. Yeah, I, it's been a weird ride for me, too, because I never really thought I would I never really anticipated becoming a comic book writer. Mm, I yeah. just figured I would always do books like God is disappointing you. So it's been a weird sort of sideways journey in my life into i just sort of fumbled into this medium but now it's hard for me to imagine doing doing anything else yeah and that was about around 2015 2016 2015 is that when when uh you were 2015 there? 2015 okay. is like right prez prez came out <laughs> and, and so we're looking at really five seven years of of i mean i guess if if you count prez as the start Five seven years in 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 this business and um, wow quick rise because uh, you know here you are working on Wonder Twins uh, at DC and uh, you know Red Sonia was one of my favorite series of, of last year um, pretty remarkable. <laughs> Thanks yeah I, um, I I I'm still relatively new to comics so I don't feel like I've been tapped out yet you know there's a there's a lot in the uh, you know I'm like a virgin oil field. Still, so, uh, probably not as virgin as I was in 2015, but 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 still, I, I feel like I got a few ideas. Yeah, yeah. I think also there's something. Uh, let's call it some kind of magical renewable energy. Uh, you know, it's some kind of uh, magical uh, fossil fuel that you provide because I think it, it, you're such a distinctive voice in comics and and um, and much needed and so replete with ideas. So yeah, I'm really curious about Second Coming. I mean, I think that's a prime example of your the richness of your ideas um and uh the the hook the premise is immediately fascinating jesus comes to earth and and kind of odd couples it with with a superhero you know like a superman character uh named sunstar 
And so uh, I'm, I'm really curious how you how this idea came to you um, for Second Coming. Was it sort of looking at the superhero, you know, obsessed pop culture and wanting to make some commentary about superheroes? Was it the Jesus side of things? Was it kind of that juxtaposition came to you fully formed? How, how did you arrive at the idea of Second Coming? Well, it really started as two completely different ideas that, you know, eventually just occurred to me. That this is, <laughs> these, this is, these are two ideas that are they're sides of the same coin. Yeah. Huh. One was a, a comic that was about superheroes and actually how limiting it is to be a superhero and how few of the world's problems can actually be solved by, you know, beating people up or <laughs> flying. Right, uh, yeah. And then the other one was a, a comic idea about Jesus Christ returning to Earth and just being sort of appalled at what's been done mm. and, you know, just how far afield Christianity has gone from his actual teachings. Yes, yeah. Uh, and it occurred to me that these are really two different ways of approaching the same idea, which is the uh, the futility of power. Yes. Uh, mm. One being that, like, like physical violence and forcing people to... Uh, to stay in line because they, they have to um, is really kind of a, an act of futility. And the other one's like, uh, it's like being, trying to heal the world with empathy and, and compassion, mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. that's met with resistance because we're so used to like every world, every problem in the world being solved by one of two solutions, right. uh, punishment or bribery. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> punishment or yeah it's i was i thought you were gonna say punch or kick but um yeah the carrot or the stick <laughs> i guess right <laughs> yeah right yeah so the, the two major innovations we've been able to come up with that may have made civilization possible yeah um yeah yeah, yeah. either yeah. one of which is too uh uh too promising yeah yeah well it's interesting i'm i'm sort of um dipping into the, the later pot but you know that Different kinds of different forms of coercion really comes up as is a theme in Billionaire Island too. I think throughout your work, it's just like fascinating the different ways you explore the manifestation of how you know we dehumanize each other as we try to control each other. Yeah, and I think that a lot of these problems stem from the fact that humans, Homo sapiens, were not really did not really evolve to live together in large numbers. Mm. We sort mm. of evolved to live together in sort of small familial clans yeah yeah. so i think a lot of what religions and what laws attempt to do Hmm. uh usually unsuccessfully but what they attempt to do is to get you to treat complete strangers like family because we're used to dealing in small familial groups where we we don't need to be told how to not to kill somebody because we we won't because they're our brother or our cousin yeah. mm. uh, or our mom or you know and, or we don't need to be told not to, to rip people off because we know that if we do they'll gossip about us and everyone yeah. will, will get will be known as like Thrak the the thief you know <laughs> throughout the, the the clan oh Thrak that guy drives me crazy <laughs> yo God, Thrak don't get me started on him yeah watch your pebbles uh, but he's, uh, but you know, when these sort of natural familial controls of mm. you know peer pressure and sort of like wanting to, and, and love mm. uh, were removed, and were suddenly immersed in a civilization full of strangers, mm. Mm. they had to come up with other ways to keep you from from doing the from from harming each right. other. Right, right, yeah. And so the, those ways usually boil down to. Uh, the government is watching and will punish you, or God is watching and will punish you. Right. I think it's largely what the uh, the, the the Ten Commandments and the the laws that Moses passed down 
in the desert were about because yeah. he was leading you know this basically this nation on a on a desert hike right and he couldn't really you know he didn't really have much in the way of government infrastructure he couldn't say oh you know we um we have a police force we'll sure. be on you yeah. so he had to come up with laws that were like well i can't watch you all the time but god can and he knows <laughs> if you are coveting your your neighbor's mule yeah, or yeah. if you are sleeping with their wife or something yeah 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 um and, and uh, that sort of clan mentality tribalism and and effort to control via the production of a larger authority man that like that is so much of what you satire you know so much of what you lampoon so ably certainly in this book also in everything from you know flintstones and snagglepuss throughout um I love that. I mean, I, I think that's so vital, a counter voice in the ways that so much comics can be pretty bought into just like the power plays and power trips. Um, so I, I that does make me think, though, to, to speak of our, our tribalisms. Uh, the book had a little bit of uh, a little bit of controversy, I think, uh, in its uh, sort of pre-publication um, stuff. And Johnny penned this really great question that, that, you know, Second Coming was resurrected by Ahoy um, after initially living and sort of being uh, fostered at Vertigo, but kind of an irony that it experienced its own Second Coming, its own resurrection. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about the book's controversy and, and why you and, and, and I, I'm sorry I failed to mention until now, you, the artist Richard Pace, who's awesome, uh, why you chose Ahoy to, to bring the book back? Yeah, so um, really when um, Second Coming was announced initially at uh, San Diego Comic-Con a, a few years ago, <laughs> there wasn't really much of an out, you know, there wasn't much of an outrage. It, it was announced and nobody really sort of, I mean, people sort of like, oh, that sounds interesting, or oh, that sounds, you know, terrible. Yeah. And it, but it, after a few initial mutterings on social media to sort of like, Died down and sure. and uh, and it was announced well in advance. It was announced like uh, about eight months before issue one was scheduled to drop. Mm -hmm. But then around, uh, so it was announced in that that July, and then around uh, Christmas mm. must have been a slow news day. But but Fox News finally, you know, caught wind of the uh, the story, and they Ooh. did this this uh, culture feature about this comic that was uh, making fun of Jesus Christ and. Uh, and that's sort of when the controversy really started. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, that's when people started paying attention. And that's when, you know, it started blowing up on social media. And then yeah. this uh, uh, petition started to get DC to drop um, Second Coming. And that mm. petition ended up generating about 500,000 signatures in the end. Wow. Um, <laughs> by signature, I mean like somebody, you know, taking a break from their internet yeah. porn long <laughs> enough to like, spend three seconds to click the ad that asked for their to sure. sign a petition. Sure, uh, sure, sure. But unfortunately, every one of those clicks, every one of those uh, people who signed the petition, then auto-generated an angry email that went directly to uh, my publisher, wow. uh, which wasn't a good look for me. Mm. Um, so they, they got, you know, all these hundreds of thousands of emails demanding that I, they drop second coming. Mm. And, mm. uh, and it was, but I don't think it was that so much. I think that uh, they were yeah. prepared for a little bit of controversy. Sure. It wasn't even so much that as there was all this executive change at the top at DC. Yeah. And yeah. so everyone was a little nervous. Like nobody wanted their name to be called to the principal's office right. at that time because people were getting laid off. 
So they sort of just discreetly asked me if I, you know, would you be interested in taking this somewhere else? Yeah, yeah. Um, which I didn't have a problem with. They, you know, they were really nice about it. I, mm, you know, mm. it wasn't like they were they were jerks or they broke sure. any promises to me. And yeah. and they were, you know, and to be honest, during the, I mean, they they did a really good job, like like getting it, you know, into shape and getting mm. the idea into shape and having me work with editors and stuff. Mm. But they Ray, were asking me to uh, and folks like to, that. Right? To change, yeah, they yeah. were asking me to change a lot of the stuff I originally wanted to put in, mm-hmm. and we're making it, you know, shorter and tighter, and um, which I understand. It's the DC way; they want everything sure. to be sort of a car chase. Sure. Um, but it was really sort of veering away from the vision that I that I wanted for it. Uh, so uh-huh. I, I said, yeah, maybe this is the best if we just sort of, um, if I just sort of take it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So they gave me the rights back, and uh, and. Of the publishers that that I, I thought I was going to take to, Ahoy was sort of at the top of my mind just because I had worked with them on a couple other projects like mm-hmm. um, the Edgar Allan Poe Snifter of Terror. That's right. Uh, and and it, I had a good time working with them, and it's it's staffed largely by sort of like exiles from Vertigo, like Tom yeah. Byer mm-hmm. and Stuart Moore. So, I, well, this is like sort of a natural fit just for that reason alone. Yeah. But they also just really got the sensibility. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're more into. There's not many places that do humor comics well, mm-hmm. and Hoy is one of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it all just seemed to come together that Hoy was the right publisher, especially because being a small and new publisher, they aren't really scared of publicity. You know, uh-huh. they mm-hmm. are. Um, there's no such thing as bad publicity to them. They. Uh, they will. They will take. The controversy was a plus. I yeah, think, yeah. You know. In some ways, you help uh, define them as well as they, you know, as much as they're helping to, you know, create a space for you. Because I think Ahoy is is standing out, you know, with stuff like Captain Ginger and with your work and the Poe, you know, the Poe work. It, 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 there's a voice that your voice is contributing to defining. I think um, over there, and and it is. Yeah, they do comics. They do comics that you wouldn't find any 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 other publisher. Yeah. It's one thing that really appealed to me about them. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, Richard Pace feels like the perfect partner for this uh, for this project. Uh, not unlike I think Steve Pugh just feels really right for your work. I think they both have, and you've mentioned before um, a little bit of Mad Magazine in your in your long ago comics diet, but that that kind of Jack Davis, Will Elder. You know, realism, but realism employed for for satire kind of style. I, I love the way that Pace does superhero, like superhero, and does like the God and Jesus scenes, kind of like the muddy uh, old, old old kind of Bible illustrations, <laughs> and, and they kind of bring together. He kind of brings together those sensibilities in this in Second Coming. Uh, how, how did you start working with Richard Pace? Well, I think it was. Um... The Vertigo editor Molly Mann, who came up with the idea of Richard for the comic, she showed me some mm. of his work, and I thought, yeah, it looks really great. Because one of the things that that I really look for in an artist, especially in a title like Second Coming, mm. is how well they can handle sort of emotional nuance. Yeah, like how mm. well they can handle mm. facial expressions or people, like you know, um, people having you know different types of emotional reactions to yeah. to what mm. is happening. And he did that extremely well. Uh, the fact that he could also do the, the superhero and the fight stuff was all was just kind of a bonus. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they signed him on, and um, yeah, his work has been phenomenal. And yeah. then also, Richard's idea was to bring Leonard Kirk on, 
uh, mm-hmm. to do inks, and mm-hmm. it's really given the the work like an extra visual dimension because the, mm. like you say, the Old Testament scenes are kind of muddy and uh, very naturalistic, and then the uh, the heaven scenes are very sort of like hyper focused and you know surrealistic. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it gives us the sort of like real sense of uh, of traveling of of places and times being very different yeah, within yeah. just the visual look of the comp, which, which is uh, really wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. It pulls off, I think, the meeting of these worlds, you know, in a, in a, in a really wonderful way. And like you said, um, Pace and, and Kirk really do a fine job with the the emotion, the emoting. I'm, I'm looking at a page right now where um, Sun Star is dejected and Jesus has this kind of wry look on his face as he drop some wisdom about loving his father but knowing that um he's always a the the life of the party and not the one to to take care of the the hard cleanup of you know of yeah. the aftermath of his actions but just the the kind of subtlety of emotion on these characters faces as they interact it's um it's pretty stunning it's pretty great yeah to me that's the soul of the comic mm, mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, this odd couple relationship uh, it's it's uh and, and it's just the coming. fact that they they do have these sort of subtle emotional responses to each other that don't need to necessarily be stated overtly because the artwork shows it yeah 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 i mean you know for all the things that you send up um and that and that you know you bring such a i think uh humorous or satirical light to uh, this was actually johnny's question and i think it really spoke to what speaks to me about your work, he says, uh, J- Johnny wrote that, you know, in the foreword to Second Coming, you write what makes a person's words and actions worth remembering or how they are different from everyone else's. And um, Johnny was just, you know, pondering about how this really is, is both a wonderful sentiment and very much like what makes Christ's story a powerful one, like th- that in such a brutal age of humanity, he fought power with, I don't know, with empathy or compassion or whatever it is. And I wonder if I would Johnny actually asks astutely like do you do you think that's a big part of what makes your work uh, your work is like a kind of creation of art via empathy via kind of you know understanding of what what people's suffering is and stuff like that yeah I hope so I, I you know I feel like as a writer your duty is to talk about the thing that bothers you the most um, <laughs> yes. it's to that's good, that's what, good whatever's way. haunting you whatever it's not just to sit down with a blank piece of paper and, and make up a story. I mean, yeah. Can do that. But but there's there's something unique about with each person about what is bugging them, what huh. haunts them, what obsesses them. Yeah. And that's what you should be writing about because that's the insight you're going to have that no one else does. Yeah. Um, huh. And then you put that in the context of a story, but really it's the unique. The, as a metaphor, I like to think like we are all sort of like um, God's pair, a different pair of eyes for God to see his creation. Huh. Yeah. So it's like my experience is so much different than yours and yours than Johnny's yeah. that only through looking through all of our eyes does God or the universe or whatever get a complete picture huh. of the uh, of the universe. Uh-huh, so there's uh-huh. no point in me trying to write, you know, like 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 a, like a, a Tom King story sure, or you sure. know a Cecil Castellucci yeah. story, right? Uh-huh. Like them because God can already see the universe through their eyes. Right. Uh, right. What the world doesn't have is a Mark Russell story. So right. I might as well write about the things that I care about, the things that I sort of obsess over. Hmm. Yeah, 
that's beautifully put. I, lo I love that. Um, you, you're reminding me a little bit of, I just heard an interview with um, comedian Michelle Wolf, and she talks a little bit about like, you know, how do you find jokes? It's wherever you feel tensions, you know? <laughs> and, and, and so she has a unique right. comedic voice, but it's like, what is the issue? Whether it's like, you know, feminism, race or whatever, where I feel like, oh, that's where I feel nervous about that. And that's where I have to find my way to the, the humor, you know? Um, and so, as you say, I think there are things that, you know, you uniquely see and you have a way of talking about, but, but I wonder about your, 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 the use of humor. Um, I mean, I think you are a satirist, um, and particularly as, as in comics, because as you said, maybe all too rare and, and, and maybe, um, uh, under acknowledged as a voice, but I've always thought of comics as like this great among, among our media, like this great gadfly, this great sort of you know, source from political cartoons and on to, to do that emperor has no clothes kind of, you know, deconstruction of power. Um, as you, like you said, I'm kind of surprised, surprised to find yourself a comic writer. Um, how do you, how do you find the medium serves humor? Humor is hard to do in comics. You know, what have you learned about, about doing that? Humor is hard to do period. Um, <laughs> but I think the reason why, you know, um, you don't see a lot of it in comics is that it, it's highly personal and it's mm -hmm. um, something that sort of like has to gestate within you. Like mm -hmm. Michelle Wolf, I'm sure like, you know, you see a, a 20 minute HBO special or something of hers. Uh, she's probably been working on that material for a year. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it takes a long time to get the right note, you know, to, to make a joke work inside <laughs> your own head to find, because a lot of what it is is like finding essence Boiling a problem down to its utter essence is usually what makes it funny. Yeah. Um, and it's difficult to do that, you know, month after month when you have, like, you know, deadlines. Or And if you're, like, most comic book writers writing three or four titles a month, yeah, yeah. it's difficult to nail that, you know, every, every single one. So, so people rarely, you know, they usually use it as sort of a leavening agent in you know, the writing mm -hmm. there or action story or, you know, but, but there's not a, it's, it's hard to produce a lot of humor, um, that quickly. But for me, I, I always use the crutch of just, you know, the fact that I'm writing about just usually is the, the, the world seems so absurd to me on its face that it's, <laughs> it's not that hard for me to find funny ways to put it. Um, George Saunders, the writer once yeah. said that, uh, humor is the truth quicker than you expected it. Huh? And so that's sort like of my, that. uh, my, uh, what I like to do is I like to just think, how can I put this as quickly and as succinctly as I can that yeah. usually just automatically makes it funny. Yeah. 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 It makes it. Yeah. And, and also as a vessel for truth, like, you know, I like it's the court jester, the only one in the room who can say the thing that everybody's kind of thinking, but can, you know, get right to it yeah. in, in that cutting way. Yeah. Well, in the way that com in one in comics, if if you choose to make a satire or do some right humor, mm. it actually lends itself very well to the, the to it because huh. it it's so um, so flexible as a medium. You mm. know, it's like in Billionaire Island, I, I have this guy sort of like an Alex, he's a, sort of an amalgam of like Alex Jones, like sure. all these sort of like Sean Hannity, all these guys who are um, sort of come try to come across as like a um sort of grassroots blue collar right. like uh man of the people right you know pundit 
but but they're really just you know like millionaires, and this is a performative yeah, sort yeah. of thing for them. Sure. There's a guy in Billionaire Island called, and his name is literally some angry guy on a motorcycle, and he does like these <laughs> podcasts, these sort of like uh, right wing conspiracy theory podcasts. Yeah. And you, the, when you see him, he's like literally on a motorcycle. But then like you know, there's a point where the, the billionaires on Billionaire Island call him. And yeah. You see, he's like on a motorcycle inside his mansion. So he's inside this mansion with like a, like a chandelier so and, you know, gold candles in the background. Right. And he's like just sitting on his motorcycle talking on the cell phone inside this mansion, yeah. which is to me is like that's a metaphor for yes. all of these sort of Alex Jones and John Hannity types. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, but it's something I could get away with in comics. I probably couldn't do any other medium just because yeah. visually it's 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 wacky enough. It really only kind of makes sense. You can do that. In that yeah. In yeah. that context. Yeah. That's so good. I, I'm just looking at a photo of um, Trump, and you know it's it's attached to some coronavirus announcement, and he looks really serious. And somebody's handing him a document, and you're like, "That's so staged. He's not listening to any briefings right now." <laughs> you know, like, like, and so the absurdity right. of like the art that artificial um, staging, you know, for for those theatrics, but. Uh, that's, I'm sure he thought that was genius too. He probably sure. whispered, like, "Hand me a document in the middle. Right. It'll look like we're working." <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, uh, yeah, there's so much of that good stuff in Billionaire Island. It was probably like a menu or something. That's right. <laughs> I'll have these three burgers. Um, I, you know, one of the characters I think you you create so well in Second Coming is 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 the God the Father character, um, and. You know, there's that moment where he's pranking someone at the gates of heaven about like, oh, we made a mistake. You're, you're destined for the lake of fire. And then he kind of cracks up in his face and he's like, there's no lake of fire. And then one of my, one of my favorite Mark Russell lines of the series, he goes, I'm just busting your meat. There's like God the Father going, I'm busting your meat. Um, do you know, thinking, thinking about how you kind of construct the, that kind of character and that humor were there like inspirations for you for the, that that tone? You know, like was there like a certain certain maybe like a certain actor or something like that who you know feeds into your like inspiration for the tone and the character of of God? Is get has a quick temper. Is always sort of changing his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, it's like I'm gonna lead you to the promised land. Oh, you. You pissed me off. Now you have to wander through the wilderness for 40 years. And then it's like, oh, you're, you know, or I'm going to flood the earth. Sure. You, right. Humans are no good. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Here's a rainbow. I'll never do it again. <laughs> you know, he's a rather mercurial figure. So sure. I just yeah. tried to play on that. But when you're God, the stakes are so high that it's, it's sort of funny to be like sort, sort of a hothead when yeah. you can, you know, <laughs> destroy the human race within a you know, five minutes, which I guess is probably also true of, of Sunstar and superheroes. That mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. The, the, the scariest thing we can imagine would be like somebody like a Superman, because you know he has one bad day. You know, he's he's like has five minutes where he's um, super angry. Yeah. We can all be dead by the time he he recovers. Yeah, 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 and that you know kind of brings me back to like the the function of humor. Um, like maybe like the sociological or the anthropological function of like satire, because what do you do with in the face of power so coercive or power so, you know, um, one of the things I think you have to do is you have to take it off, take it down a couple pegs with with 
you know, with humor. I feel like that is, you know, I don't know if this is how comfortable you feel with this label, but like the political project of your of your books. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, humor is useful because the truth, when the truth is too awful to contemplate, uh, it, it does it makes it feel a little more. Um, it makes it feel a little more manageable. It makes mm-hmm. the perspective to feel a little more human if you can laugh at it. Yeah. Uh, whereas the awesomeness of like power and and one of the themes of Second Coming, I think probably of all my work, is that mm-hmm. like when power is concentrated. Uh, there becomes no good way to use it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything mm-hmm. you do, it's like if you were a, a, a hundred foot tall giant, then you know even if you're not trying to, you're always stepping on somebody. Mm-hmm. Every time you turn around, you're you know destroying a house. Yeah. That's the problem with you know whether it be wealth inequality or you know yeah. investing all this the, the power of life and death into our political institutions right. is that they're going to. You know, they're a hundred foot giant. They're going to be, right. even if they're trying to do well, which they're not always are, they're right. going to be destroying lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and then, but to, to go a different way is full of its own, you know, ambiguities and ambivalences, which I think you write so well in your Jesus character in Second Coming. I mean, I, I think what galls me the most about maybe the controversy or the reaction or people bristling at um, you taking on a Jesus character is actually you do so much good for, (laughs) for Jesus, for that character. You know, I, 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 you know, count myself a a progressive Christian. I'm a lot like the, many of the people that wrote in your letters columns of like, you know, I I wish folks would actually read this because I think you um, do a whole lot to render not only the sort of like the, the, some beauty of the character of, of Jesus, or at least, you know, what we know about him. Um, but also the contradictions, you know, and really how hard it is to sit in that kind of position. If you try to attack or address power differently. Yeah. It's actually a very pro Christ comic book. Um, and I think that's one thing that sort of got lost in the uh, controversy because no, the controversy happened before anybody had read it. So right. people were, felt entitled to just sort of make up their own sort of extrapolation of what the comic was going to be and what it was going to be like because yeah. there was nothing to contradict them. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why controversy has largely sort of dissipated because now that the comic is actually out and people can read it for themselves, uh, that narrative that this is like mocking Christ or it's mm-hmm. just making fun of Christians is 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 kind of it's contradicted by sure. the reality of the comic. Sure. Uh, sure. Mm. It's more about the institutions of religion and the institutions of uh, power yeah. about how they're failing people. Yeah. And and the the cri- the tragedy of Christ is how those institutions managed to co-opt his message. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. With a message which was itself. Very much, uh, you know, po- pointing out prophetically anti-institutional uh, you know, problems of those institutions. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's a it's a it's a wonderful piece of work. I, you know, I think as a comics fan and as as a a, a reader who who thinks about these things, um, it's great fun and actually really touching. Like I, I think that was the part of it that great. Uh, all all of your books do have have this note somewhere, and there's a lot about fatherhood and and adoption, and of course about the exercise of power and and unaccountable authority that you that you depict. Um, but that, that actually brings me to billionaire Island because I think there's a whole lot of that there too. Um, it looks, looks like, so I've, I've had the pleasure of reading the first issue, which, uh, came out last week. And, um, 
maybe you can talk a little bit about um, the premise of Billionaire Island and, and how did you arrive at, you know, this um, this uh, amazing depiction of you know wealth inequality as you were saying. Yeah, so Billionaire Island is about um, a group of the world's richest billionaires who decide to like escape the end of the world by building an artificial island in the Gulf of Mexico, mm. and they call the island Freedom Unlimited because there's no taxes, there's no laws sure. beyond the ones that they make. And uh, neoliberal freedom, they think clearly. To be clear, right? We we know what right. kind of freedom we're talking about. There's, there are literally <laughs> offshore banks uh, yes. on Billionaire Island, and yes. you know you can. There's a restaurant that serves in nothing but endangered species. Yeah. Uh, you, you whatever you want. If you're a billionaire, it's your playground. Right. Uh, mm. But it, it it it's really about them trying to wait out the end of the world and the people who are trying to uh not necessarily stop him but one one of the guys there's two of the, the protagonists one is a, a guy whose family was killed by this um this virus that they created in the food supply to control the rest of the non-billionaire island mm-hmm. uh human population and so he comes to billionaire island looking for revenge yeah and mm-hmm. then another one is a journalist who hears about this virus and is going to do a story and wants to ask uh the guy who owns like the Monsanto-like corporation, right. which Bel- in Billionaire Island right. is called Agrocorp. Agrocorp, really, right, right. Yeah, right, right, they, right. They, they went to go, go interview uh, this billionaire, Rick Canto, who owns that, right. that, that company, right. and ends up getting locked into, in, a, in a giant hamster cage right. in which he keeps everybody who's problematic for him sure. uh, <laughs> because there are no laws against kidnapping or you know, false imprisonment on this yeah. island. Yeah. So he has this hamster cage full of like accountants and middle managers, people have seen things they shouldn't have seen, and this journalist. Yeah. And that's sort of that's, that's sort of the premise is like the, the the billionaires trying to like wait out the end of the world, this island, and the people who are who are pesky enough not to let them do it. Peace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, here they are. Uh, the uh, I'm trying to remember her. I, all I can think is Nellie Bly. Oh, Shelley Bly, right? Is the is the reporter's name? I love. Right. I, I love that uh, shout out. That you know gets thrown to give away a little bit of the first issue uh, folks should still run out and get it for sure but uh, gets thrown into this sort of cage match um in the bowels of the island and in, in in the dungeon along with like a young executive and 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 there's a the sort of mini um hyper capitalism <laughs> survival thing going on there um it's yeah it, it's sort of like a, a microcosm of the uh, of the of the the world that we live in uh, oh, yeah. that it's a hamster cage and the they are they're prisoners of the system but they are also sort of taken care of by it sure they bring yeah. them food three times a day and the food's not bad <laughs> and they right. change the water bottle that they can suckle from mm-hmm. and they someone brings in fresh sawdust so it, you do sort of feel like you're you're taken care of at the same time you're a prisoner and a lot of the arguments they have about whether or not they should try to escape and about, Oh, it's, it's comfortable here and there's nowhere else to go yeah. are sort of these, you know, microcosms of the arguments we have about, you know, participation and, you know, yes. the, 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 the capitalist system in the United States. Yeah. It's yeah. like, well, on the one hand, you know, I got to pay the bills and this, this job does it. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it's using prison labor. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a brilliant and uh, and hilarious framing device, really, for for you to have you know characters voice those different uh, experiences and and you know sort of tiny obsessions that form as you're in that rat race. Um, so clearly, metaphorically, part of this bigger machine that uh, that we have to be aware of. Yeah. Um, no, I I really enjoy that first issue, 
you hinted a little bit at where it's going though um you know we have uh, together with that you know incredible wealth inequality and 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 sort of the corporate system um some uh, some comeuppance right this character that you've set up whose right. family has been lost to you know their um their kind of ploys to to control um i don't i, I don't know is there is there a, a revolutionary bent in this you know is is there uh something that you i think there is there's yeah. a sense that like like the system um is is driving us over a cliff yeah and somebody's got to grab the steering wheel away from the people driving it or we will all plummet over the cliff yeah, yeah. i think that's that's a lot of I think in a lot of ways, Billionaire Island's probably the darkest, maybe the most angry uh, work huh. that I've done because I think it is very much rooted in my my own sort of like angst about what what is happening to the world and the prospects for human civilization surviving the 21st century, which yeah. I don't think are terribly great. No, it's um, it's dark and scary times. I I think about <laughs> all the time. Um, yeah, actually, Johnny was asked, gonna, wanted to ask you exactly that sentiment is, you know, feeling like this is, in a powerful way, maybe your angriest book, and and if you if you feel like that's that's so, um, but I, I guess you know, in the in the course of that, you know, it's not the job I think of this kind of text to to highlight sources of hope, you know, <laughs> that's not the point here necessarily, like right. you know, reasons for hope, and yet I I I, I detect in your characters in their persistence to do things about it, you know, in their agency, you know, um, in the, in the reporter and in the, in the person who tries to take some, some action in their own hands, a little bit of, uh, some openings for, you know, let's not just sit idly by and laugh and cry. Um, we have some things to do. Right. It's it, in a way it sort of harkens back to second coming and that the two heroes are people who are a person who, uh, wouldn't, would not be punished and the person who would not be bribed. Yeah. Huh. Huh. I like that. So they are willing by, by defying those two sort of, uh, the carrot stick that the, the billionaire Island, the capitalist system was able to use against them. They have successfully taken themselves out outside the system and can change it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, can you, just to pivot a little bit, can you talk a little bit about working with Steve Pugh, um, who, you know, past collaborations have been really awesome, and I think we, we're looking at some of the, the, the you know, fine product of that. Um, how, how do you work with, with Pugh, and how is that, you know, similar to and different from some of the other artists that you've partnered with? Yeah, Steve, I was lucky uh, enough to work with Steve on the Flintstones, mm -hmm. uh, so really early in my comic career, I got to work with Steve and it kind of spoiled me because he got me so well. I didn't have to write a, you know, a ton of like art notes, you know, huh. to get this, to convey the sensibility and the emotion of what I was writing. He just sort of got it. Yeah. So I, I, I usually give him like very light art notes cause I know that he's just, he's, he gets it and he's going to run with it and do something wonderful uh -huh. that. And he usually like when I see his art, you know, is usually even more cartoonish and, and crazy than, what I had written so that I have to go back when I'm writing the dialogue and make it even like amp it up even more, huh, make huh. it even wilder to, to match the art. So we do have this effect where we sort of like exacerbate each other, yes. uh, sort of like uh, amplify each other's natural tendencies yeah. to, for, for satire. 
Yeah. Oh, that's I love I love that. Right. There's a you write to the art. The art sort of rises to your your uh, sensibility in the writing. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then uh, I gotta um, like uh, do the rewrite based on the art, thinking, oh man, I gotta live up to this. <laughs> I think that's the I love those kinds of stories. I mean, it's a little bit of like Stan and Jack, you know, <laughs> like, you know that that uh, right. mar- Marvel process or method or whatever, where uh, you know they they you know co co constitute each other, um, which is the best kinds of marriages in in comics work. Yeah. Um, do you can can you talk a little bit more about your your um, kind of your, your process? Are 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 you um, you know in terms of crafting the story? Are you like a, a full script writer at the outset? Um, you know, or or is it sort of a issue by issue? Let's kind of see where this conversation, this dialogue takes us. Um, or or have, are you the kind of architect the story from the outset kind of writer? I start with an architecture. I usually have an outline and I write a full script. Um, but usually in the act of writing, the story changes from what I had, um, I had originally planned. Mm-hmm. So there is the architect in me, which is like, Oh, I know how this is going to go. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's also the craftsman, which is sort of like, well, this would be nice if I just, if I just sanded this a little more, or if yeah. I, you know, or, you know, the, the, it'd be great to have like a, um, a, uh, sort of a plot twist here or a little metaphor there. Hmm. And I, what I've learned is like when they come into conflict, when the craftsman comes into conflict with the architect hmm. side with the craftsman, hmm. uh, <laughs> change the script to feel to, to conform to what feels natural as you're writing it yeah. rather than trying to force it to stay true to this sort of blueprint that you'd drawn up months before. Sure. Uh, yeah. Because that, that craftsman, yeah. that when you're in the weeds, when you're doing what's, what makes sense at the moment, yeah. That's where you get the the strong yeah. emotional moments. Okay. That's where you get the the humanity of the That's work right. comes through. That's and right. you don't want to like kill that in order to preserve the you know the the bones of this three act structure that you had sort sure. of written and outlined <laughs> sure. for. Sure. I mean, how many comics have we seen or stories of all kinds sort of become deadened because they're overcommitted to whatever the the structures or the form or the, yeah. the genre conventions, right? Um so to have a pulse on where the life, where the life is, is, is in the work and to follow that to some extent. Um, yeah, it's a di- that's awesome. It's the difference between buying, you know, like a, like a, um, a bench at Walmart. That's the same as all the, as the 500 other benches they sell mm. or making one in your garage. That's, right. you know, there, there's, there, this is like a, a handcrafted wood bench that looks not like nothing else in the world. That's right. And the craftsman yeah. is the one that's going to give you the, nothing else like this in the world that's so right trust that part of your creative process yeah especially shaped to your butt and your butt's needs <laughs> yep um that that's not, unfortunately not all butts will fit this bench but those that do are really gonna like it <laughs> that's right that's right it's for my caboose distinctly distinctly crafted yeah um <laughs> i i'm curious oh so billionaire island is uh is it a six issue arc that that's uh coming yeah yeah okay. six issues and i hadn't planned for any more it ends on a pretty uh pretty big end point so uh-huh. It, it, uh-huh. i don't know if there are gonna ever be more okay. although i if they wanted me to make more i probably would uh <laughs> i would basically find a new story yeah but yeah. uh but yeah six issues okay and I should have mentioned it, um, Second Coming might be back for more, right? We, we 
maybe there's a, a, a tease at the it end. It will be. That. Oh, that's awesome. That's great to hear. Yeah, second coming, ideally, because I, I got to I gotta tell so little of what I had to say in the first six issues. Mm. Ideally, I would do second coming. Second coming would go on for like 24, 30 issues. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, there will be more. I can guarantee at least another six, probably. Oh, that, that's fantastic. That's good to hear about. It's funny that you say, you know, you, you didn't get to say so much. You, you ended up saying so much in those six issues. But I imagine, you know, there's so much more terrain to explore for you in that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot more planned that obviously was just, I knew it was never going to fit inside six issues. Yeah. But I think that, that that's good, What even yeah. if you only do get six issues to make the world you've created feel like there's there's more. I think that's what like something like Tolkien does really well. Yeah. It's like you read The Lord of the Rings and you get the sense that, that he's not just making this up as, as it goes along. This is like something right. you're reading about that takes place in a fully formed universe, mm. which he's, you know, you know as, as he's conceived of the laws of physics and he's conceived of all these things that, 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 you might not even be in the text, yeah, yeah, but that make you feel like you're in good hands because the world has been more thought out than than what you're just reading in the pages. Yeah, and I I, I think that was maybe the advantage of like having more to say with Second Coming than mm. I was able to do in the six issues. Mm. That's it's it's really intriguing because you know certainly in comics and uh, in in this kind of genre pop culture we talk a lot about think a lot about world building and like the attraction of world building, but to think about that in the kind of story that Second Coming is, um, you know, because it's so much in, in dialogue with reality, right? I mean, not Jesus walking on the streets or superheroes, but just sort of like, you know, power and politics and society and things like that. It's it's just intriguing to think about these imagined parallel worlds and how they can kind of expand out to comment on other things that are going on in our world. You know, there's so much in whatever religion and society about which we could explore and, and write. Um, that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, Thanks. I, I guess I want to ask, um, an, another one of Johnny's questions that I really enjoyed. Johnny's a, a big Chuck Klosterman, um, fan. And, uh, he, he, uh, you know, he has that, this book, uh, but what if we're wrong thinking about the future as if it were the past and, and, and uh, Johnny, you know, notes that it, it seems to deal with some similar themes to your work, you know, kind of analyzing aspects of pop culture as if it were, they were kind of crystallized in amber and then and then critiquing contemporary society through them. So, you know, see you doing that in Snagglepuss about human rights and and then uh, uh, and then in the nuclear about the nuclear family through Flintstones and things like that. So I, I guess do you do you feel the question is, do you feel like similar about how you have been interacting, working with these different bits, these different kinds of pop, pop culture ephemera, you know, from your Count Chocula, you know, fanfic stuff to, to even working with Wonder Twins now. Um, again, this is coming from Johnny's, Johnny's thoughts here. Uh, how, how do you, how do you sort of take on these different pop culture pieces that you, that you use to do what you do? Well, I think there are a couple ways. You, one, you think, that whatever project you're working on, if it's like an existing intellectual property like Flintstones mm -hmm. or Wonder Twins, you mm -hmm. think, what is about this cultural equity that I want to like borrow on? Huh. What is it that mm -hmm. I want people to like come in with like this sort of preconceived notion about and then change? Yeah. So, so then what I like to do is usually take like two or three things that I love about the series, that I love about that those characters, mm -hmm. and throw mm -hmm. away all the rest. 
to start from <laughs> new, retaining only the two or three things that make them recognizable right. and that I think are, are worth saving. Like for the Flintstones, that was um, the uh, Fred is sort of like an everyman, and then also the um, the animal slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, right. The, the animals that like live at the planets and uh, yeah, seem to be yeah. aware that that they are uh, not living their best lives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so I, I built the uh, the series on on those two sort of presumptions that Fred is like uh, carries the banner for all of us who yeah. are just sort of like cogs in this uh, in civilization, yeah, and yeah, yeah. the the animals are the 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 ones who pay the price for it mm, mm. and um yeah wonder twins it was just sort of i wanted to, to I, I took the idea that they are the superheroes who are allowed to make mistakes uh, they uh-huh. are one to you know the, the old my only exposure to the wonder twins i think anybody's exposure to them was was pretty much just the uh the old super friends cartoons yeah in yeah, the yeah. 70s yeah, and 80s friends. exactly and <laughs> Yeah, and and I, I liked them back then when I was a kid because right. Batman had to be perfect, Superman had to be perfect. They could you know screw something up. Yeah. They yeah. could um. They could uh you know make mistakes and the, and it was okay. And so I wanted to to play with that idea. That and they were they were like sort of B listers. They weren't yeah. super. Um, they weren't gonna you weren't gonna send them to go deal with Doomsday. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, I wanted the, the it allowed me to come up with a cast of like B list villains for them to uh, to deal with, and that mm-hmm, was a, mm-hmm. a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. allowed me to talk about like the the issues of like villains being you know themselves sort of working stiffs, yeah, who yeah, uh, yeah. a lot of most of whom are are either on the way up and are just trying to figure out what they're good at, or on the way down and in a state of tragic decline, and yeah, they're never right. going to make it to like the Hall of Doom. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, again, it's just more of that um, Mark Russell voice that uh, I really enjoy. I I just especially appreciate that, you know, comics can get very old very fast, but um, the way that you sort of like again like renew uh, or or revive the, some core interesting piece about a you know any given IP. Um, I, I thought you did this really well with Red Red Sonia and Lone Ranger as well with Dynamite. And and just like found the soul uh, of it, and then you know maybe dispensed with the rest to really tell a fascinating story that again and again speaks to our 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 world to to these questions of power and and, and how we in all in our sociality. I love it. And and you resurrected the oldest IP there is, God, <laughs> God himself, uh, and did it brilliantly in Second Coming. And and you you know talk, you do it. Talk do about it. cultural equity. That's uh, right. People have a lot of in on a with that character. That's right. That's right. Um, and and also in Billionaire Island, I, I could talk to you for hours more about um, all your work. Uh, definitely, though, appreciate your time. And folks should definitely um, follow Billionaire Island as it comes out. I really I can't wait for the next issues, and um, and check out Second Coming Great. if they haven't yeah. already. Yeah. Um, Mark Russell. Well, thanks so much, Paul. It's been great. Yeah, I would love talking to you, and thank you for your insight and coming on Comic Syllabus with us. My pleasure. <laughs> Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. 
Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. All right. I want to thank um, Mark Russell and uh, uh, for taking time to talk to us. Uh, that was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Um, and we do miss Johnny uh, and his presence and voice. Um, he had some really great questions from Mark that I drew liberally from as I was uh, engaging in that conversation. But um, ah, so fun and so cool to hear about his work and how he arrives at um, you know doing what he does. Um, this is our picks and shovels segment, and again, normally Johnny and I get to trade back and forth with some of the things that we've been reading, um, but this week it's just me, so I hope you'll tolerate the solo mic for a minute. Um, I just got five. I got five for us this week, and they're all things that I'm pretty excited about, so if you're looking for things to pick up or catch up on on comic book shelves or bookstores, um, these are for you. Well, the first one that I want to uh, talk about is a title called Almost American Girl. It's a graphic novel, autobiographical memoir, by uh, an artist named Robin Ha, who you might know if you checked out a few, year, few uh, years ago <laughs> a, the, a graphic novel about cooking Korean food. I think it was called Cook Korean. Cook Korean. Um, but Almost American Girl is um, published by Balzer and Bray. And it is um, one of the things that I have read this the last few years where I thought I knew what I was getting into and I don't know that you know reading it didn't like shock me it wasn't like what is this this is something completely different from my expectations um, but it actually unpacked dimensions of a certain experience namely the experience of a, a um, you know a, a teenage girl who is growing up as an immigrant in America it unpacked dimensions of that experience that reminds me that as much as I may know about that experience, both from my own life and also working with adolescents, and particularly immigrant adolescents, there's always uh, more parts of the story and different stories that um, are just true by virtue of each of us being different human beings with different journeys that um, make it so that, you know, you, you shouldn't uh, always think you know everything that's coming. And, you know, so um, Robin Ha is the artist who is describing her experience as a teenage girl who, um, you know, some of the unique uh, dimensions of her uh, immigrant story is that she uh, came to the United States, uh, to the South, I believe, um, from South Korea. And when she first arrives, she thinks she's on vacation, actually. She thinks she's there for just a, a, a trip with her mom. Her mom is a single mom. She's an only child. And they wind up in, um, in I, I can't remember if it's Tennessee or Alabama or something like that. And they wind up, uh, she winds up finding out that it's not just a trip, but that they have, um, that her mom has married someone, uh, a Korean man who... You know, met her on a trip back to South Korea, and that now they were going to stay. Uh, that they'd married into this family, and it's a family that includes um, now step cousins who um, are more or less welcoming and inclusive of her. And it's this jarring experience of you know you're a teenage 
girl with friends and, and a life back home and, and hobbies and interests and school and everything like that. And all of a sudden your world is turned upside down because suddenly you are, um, you know, in a, in a strange land um, where your language will be ridiculed and the way you dress and, you know, the pop culture that you consume. Um, I should have mentioned that Ha is roughly, I think, my age. Uh, I think, she, you know, there's um, indications in the book. And, um, and so she's growing up as an immigrant in, I think, I think it's the, it might be the late 80s, but I think it's the early 90s um, in, in the United States. And so all those pop culture references and also the sort of experience of the world around her and really just how much or really how little um, the community at her school is prepared to receive and to welcome a student like her. Um, but Ha's um, salvation as a kid has, was and uh, also remains um, her interest in, in art and in um, manga, uh, manhua, and, uh, and comics, and uh, becomes a route by which she finds herself, finds expression, and finds friendships. So anyway, it's a fantastic book. I, um, I really do recommend it. And even though I've read so many uh, stories, including um, you know, graphic memoirs about the um, experience of being an immigrant, uh, like I said at the beginning, there's just different dimensions and different um, factors and ways that um, Ha relates her experience, her relationship with her mother, the um, all the all the hardships, um, and also all the things, all the ways that you you make your way in a new new place um, that are so pretty unique um, and were super interesting. So definitely recommend that. Um, another graphic novel, and, and, and that one, by the way, is one that I think that, um, you know, teens, uh, young readers uh, can, can enjoy, as well as adult readers. Um, another thing that I've been reading that I think is um, more targeted toward that middle grade young adult reader audience um, is Shadow the Batgirl, which is a book, a graphic novel from that DC Kids line, uh, or I'm not sure what the line is called anymore. DC Ink Zoom something or other. <laughs> but um, they've been, you know, pumping out these uh, really fantastic um, graphic novel versions, you know, out of continuity, but um, really unique takes and often put in the hands of um, YA writers and, uh, you know, uh, artists of, of, you know, different styles and aesthetics. Um, and some of them have been really fantastic. And uh, Shadow of the Batgirl came out, um, I think, about a month ago, um, written by Sarah Kuhn, with art by Nicole Go, um, G-O-U-X is how you spell that artist's name. Um, and this one tells the story of a Batgirl um, emergent, <laughs> a Batgirl finding herself and finding her uh, a superhero role. And uh, I think what's exciting about this one is that it is the Cassandra Kane character who um, you know, has kind of come and gone and, and played different parts in the actual DC continuity and DC universe. Um, a, an Asian American uh, character uh, trained as an assassin and uh, sort of, you know, uh, knows how to kill but doesn't know how to talk. And so that whole dynamic is, um, is drawn and played out in a really interesting way. Um, this, uh, this rendition of the character and of her her orientation to the world has um, a whole lot to speak for it. I think the art is really, really uh, fine, has this just wonderful quality. I, I don't know how to describe it. Um, I think you really have to see it, but it's um, appealing, legible, um, uh, really kind of has a, a, a kind of a nice emotional resonance to it and a nice fit with the story, which is really one of, uh, 
you know, somebody who's been uh, hyper-trained for a certain purpose, but having to come out of uh, that, the safety of that identity and figure out really how to connect with others. Uh, she spends a lot of time in a huge library, which <laughs> can imagine a better fantasy uh, than uh, being an assassin with uh, incredible killing powers and, and spending all your time figuring out the world by living, hiding, living in a library. Um, and also includes a little bit of apprenticeship under um, the Barbara Gordon character as well. So it's just an interesting uh, one of these uh, uh, DC graphic novels for, for younger readers that uh, I, I would really recommend. Um, speaking of superheroes, uh, something that I've been playing catch up on has been um, Marvel's Daredevil run, which uh, I think last week, issue 19, uh, came out. And so I've caught up on... <laughs> it was one of those things where I, st I read issue one about 14 times and, and kept trying to, you know, read further and further and uh, just, you know, they, they start stacking up and uh, you don't catch up. But uh, initially, uh, the series was, or has been written by Chip Zdarsky, um, continues to be, um, but but initially uh, with art by Mark Cicchetto, 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 Cicchetto. <laughs> I've decided. Um, and other artists have stepped in, uh, in including uh, Jorge, Jorge Fornes and others. Um, but, um, you know, really uh, a kind of ongoing uh, story about um, initially uh, uh, Daredevil, uh, uh, Matt, uh, coming to, to uh, uh, you know, f uh, have to deal with some really tough um, questions of the, the sort of morals of his own his own participation, I guess, as a superhero. He's, um, uh, he actually is, seems like in the beginning of the very first arc, seems to have been framed uh, for the murder of one of the criminals that he's apprehending. Um, and, uh, but um, in any case, what happens is that, you know, he's fighting bad guys and one of them dies as a result. And so he has to ask some really um, profound questions about, you know the the ethics, the legality, the the rightness, the righteousness, um, maybe the self righteousness of his own actions uh, during this stretch, during this run. You know he he um, sort of leaves as he has so many times before, leaves the costume behind, um, but is drawn in inexorably to um, crime fighting. Uh, as we're living now in a New York where, um, in a very pointed post Trump. Uh, time sort of t type of story, uh, Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, has become the mayor. Uh, and so we also get to see a little bit of uh, Fisk trying to, you know, legitimize his, uh, his, his operation and uh, stumbling as that happens. Um, and so, you know, different twists and turns. Uh, Electra shows up at one point. Um, there's a, a few romances, uh, the typical Daredevil stuff. Um, I think that probably what I can say to recommend it the most is just that um, I think Zdarsky, who, you know, you, you know, know of Zdarsky's work and its ranginess, um, has, has taken for me a little bit to find, a, like to kind of steady his hand and his voice in, in what kind of story he's telling. Um, with this Daredevil run, but I think it, things are coming together right now. Um, plot points are coming together to carry it with momentum that um, it's been really intriguing. And so I'm, I'm excited to see where um, issue 20 goes with this current run of Daredevil. Um, something that is not going to go 20 issues, that, uh, but that is a series I also recommend. I believe it's ending with its fifth issue. is a miniseries um, 
by written by Matt Kent with art by Matt Smith from Boom Studios, and this is Folklords. And uh, just uh, last week, Folklords issue four came out. Um, Folklords uh, builds its story around um, a, a land of <laughs> fantastical, you know, woodland uh, uh, fa- fantasy characters who. <laughs> <laughs> who um, there are, you know, it's, a, it's actually a very tightly controlled, rather draconian community with uh, that does not, that, uh, you know, has a certain uh, a coming of age rite, a coming of age ritual for its young elves and trolls and whatever else. Um, and, uh, and there are whispers, though, that somewhere out there are the, you know, story tellers, the real people, uh, which uh, they, for them are fantasies, um, and for us, we know, of course, as our own world. Spins off from there. Um, I, I, I am still sort of, you know, trying to decide how I feel about the story. I think the fifth issue and how it sticks the landing will matter a lot to me. There are enough threads, and the story reads um, cleanly enough that um, I'm, you know, I'm intrigued. I like it. But I have to say what um, speaks the most to this um, series for me. Uh, I am a huge fan of Matt Kent. I do like uh, almost everything that he's done. Uh, There's a few things that have been, yeah, so-so. But a whole lot has been uh, really rich for me. Something about his style just really speaks to me. Um, But it is uh, Matt Smith and his art that uh, makes me love this series so much. Um, Smith uh, has a... uh, really kind of a, a cartoonish quality that <laughs> listeners of this show will know that um, I am a big fan of when there is the kind of quality but the kind of imagination that um, you know you might see in uh, really great animation work, for instance. And you can see that in Matt Smith's um, uh, art uh, here in Folklords. Um, Matt Smith, uh, he sounds a little bit familiar, had a series in uh, 2018 from Image called Lake of Fire and also did provided the art for um, Barbarian Lord in uh, 2014. Um, Smith's art uh, in Lake of Fire made it one of my favorite series that year. And Folklords is uh, no less um, impressive uh, in artistic feat. So great storytelling, um, just a style that really appeals to me and gets to really draw out this um, sort of fantasy um, intermingling into our reality world, and I, I like it. So check out Folklords. Um, I'm kind of excited for it to, to finish its run, and uh, hopefully we can talk about it here at Comic Syllabus. Um, but, 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 speaking of uh, beautiful fantasy comics, um, I must recommend to you, and I you know entreat you to pick up somehow and read um, this next recommendation, which is The Golden Age, Book One, um, by Roxanne Morel, Morel, uh, writer, and art by Cyril Pedrosa from First Second. Um, the Golden Age is a new graphic novel that um, First Second is, is putting out. And, you know, if you have a picture of a book from First Second in your head and it's sort of a certain, you know, novel sized format, um, take that picture out and replace it with a large format hardcover. Um, the kind of book whose art is so gorgeous that it deserves a hardcover and a very large printed treatment, which is exactly what this is, The Golden Age. Uh, this is book one. It's supposed to be a duology, so I think there's going to be a book two to finish the story. It is essentially the story of a, sort of a fantasy kingdom, you know, with castles and all, all that. 
Um, but uh, the king of this kingdom is um, ha- was sick and has has passed, and so now a question of succession as um, his daughter and uh, several competing uh, lines toward the throne are you know now in a in a struggle for who's going to um, take take hold of that 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 leadership. Um, it's sort of you know really great fantasy, but the the art by Pedrosa has um, this great blend of that sort of, you know, you imagine the sort of kind of gold leaf um, medieval illustration combined with the kind of, you know, wacky animation style of, say, you know, a sword in the stone or something like that. Um, and so there's uh, some, some of it is super impressionistic, but a whole lot of it is just really, really gorgeous, gorgeous art. Um, art that renders and portrays a fantasy story that I'm uh, totally, uh, you know, um, wrapped wrapped up in. And uh, so uh, I know Johnny has been checking out this one too and likes it too. And I think so. it's quite likely we'll talk about it next episode. So pick up, if you all can, The Golden Age, book one, and read along with us. Um, I think I can uh, fairly promise, fairly well promise that uh, we'll touch back on that book. Um, we're also likely to touch back on something that will be out, um, I think, by the time not this episode, but the next episode drops, um, which is Jean Luen Yang's Dragon Hoops, also from first second. Um, comes out the 15th or 17th or something like that of March. Um, check that out. Um, got to read a preview and looking forward to reviewing it. Um, but it's uh, it's great. Uh, I've talked it up already on the podcast. So, <laughs> you know, go ahead, just pre-order it. Um, and we'll talk about that one as well. Um, that one and Golden Age. Um, two very, very different comics, but uh, both tremendous. Um, as is the the stuff that you could read if you uh, pick up Mark Russell's books. So we mentioned in our interview conversation, um, Billionaire Island, number one, is out. Second Coming Collection is out. Um, and read, read the oeuvre. <laughs> read the whole Mark Russell verse. Uh, you know, the, they're just good comics. Um, Flintstones, Snagglepuss. Uh, got it disappointed in you, Prez. Uh, if you haven't read those things, you're in for a treat. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here at the Comic Syllabus. Let's keep reading. <laughs>